Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You're listening to the QuickBook Reviews podcast. Brighten your day with a book. Hello, my fellow bookworms. This is Philippa from QuickBook Reviews, author interviews and book reviews. How are you doing today? Do you know, I was thinking, I'm actually going to put a poll up somewhere. I don't know where, but somewhere in the world, asking if anybody has read the book first and then enjoyed the film or the TV series more. Because, I know I've spoken about this before, but I know everyone goes on back. Oh, you must read the book first before you see it on screen because it's always so disappointing. Why not just do it the other way around? Why why be disappointed? Why not just watch the film or the TV series and then read the book? So my question to you is, have you ever read a book and then watched it and enjoyed the watching experience? That is my question. Please let me know. You know how to contact me in all the usual ways. I need the information and I need it now. But what books have we got? We have got such a range of interesting books today. My goodness, I can't wait to talk to you about them. So we've got A Stroke of the Pen, The Lost Stories by Terry Pratchett. And we've got Terry's former assistant, friend and joint head of the Pratchett Literary Estate, Rob Wilkins, coming on to talk to us about that book and about Terry as well. I can't wait for you to hear that. Then also we've got The Book at War by Andrew Pettigree. And Andrew's coming on to talk to us about this book. Now, oh, well, I'll come on to why I wanted to tell you about that book in a minute, because that's exciting. Then I'm also going to tell you about, as a review, the one of the Agatha Christie Poirot books, Halloween Party. Then I'm going to review Natural Causes by James Oswald. And finally, Into the Uncanny by Danny Robbins. I have things to say about that book. Let's get started. So, A Stroke of the Pen, The Lost Stories by Terry Pratchett. So this is said to be a truly unmissable set of unearthed stories from the pen of Sir Terry Pratchett, award-winning, best-selling author and creator of the phenomenally successful Discworld series. And I don't want to say any more about this because I just think we need to talk to Rob about this. Rob's enthusiasm is infectious and I just can't wait. Here we go. It is my absolute pleasure to welcome today Rob Wilkins. Rob is the former assistant, friend and head of the Pratchett Literary Estate to talk to us today about A Stroke of the Pen, 
by Terry Pratchett. Rob, welcome to the podcast. Good morning, good morning. And I have to say right away, a joint head, because uh, my co-head of the uh, Terry Pratchett Literary Estate is no other than Rihanna Pratchett herself. Oh, there you go. (laughs) And that already shows that I have failed in my research immediately. So (laughs) I need to come up with some better things. (laughs) <laughs> Terry always made sure that he corrected any journalist within the first minute of an interview because it, it put the journalist on the back foot, you see. So I appear to be following in his footsteps, which I don't think is a good thing. I absolutely love that. And I think that's great. And I'm looking even more forward to our chat, Rob. So no, that's, Thank you. that's all good. Can you tell us a bit about how this amazing book got discovered? It's ridiculous. We absolutely knew there was no more Terry Pratchett material out there because on his death, some complete idiot, namely me, crushed his hard drive with a steamroller. So it was a very definite full stop at the end of Terry Pratchett's writing career. I was very sad to do it, but it's what he wanted. He wanted me to either fire the hard drive into space, which I think could have been fun, or crush it under the wheels of a steamroller. And as the Great Dorset Steam Fair takes place just over there, there, uh-huh. uh, listeners, I'm just pointing outside the window, just a couple of miles down the road, it seemed the obvious thing to do. So there was no more Terry Pratchett material. But then a fan, a guy called Chris Lawrence, contacted Colin Smythe, Terry's agent, and said that he had very diligently cut out a story called A Quest for the Keys some 50 years ago. This is crazy. It couldn't have been 50 years ago. It must have been 40 years ago. Was it 30 years ago? Who knows when it was? But he, Period of time. He cut these stories out. But the reason I say it like that is that he was so diligent that he'd actually snipped off what newspaper and the date. So he, it was some point in the past. And it was a story that we, that we didn't know about. And it was really, really very good. And the thing we know now, and I'll throw in a footnote straight away, is that it was written at some point after The Colour of Magic, but before The Light Fantastic. So... What I'm saying is during the writing of The Light Fantastic, this short story was written. And so I can almost convince myself that it's that it's Discworld canon. So it, it's that special. <laughs> it's that special. But along come two super fans, uh, very good friends of ours, Pat and Jan Harkin, who went off to the newspaper archive up in Yorkshire and decided that rather than going off and playing golf in their retirement, what they would do is hunt through dusty tomes looking for the quest for the keys. Now, I know I'm going to get this slightly wrong, but they started in the wrong place and they either moved backwards or moved forwards. But by doing it the way that they did it, it meant that they stumbled over some short stories by this guy called Patrick Keans. And because they're medical, medically trained uh, and both university lecturers, they are they're, the way they deal with research is, is very precise because they would rather do it once and have too much data at the end of it, rather than getting to the end of it, realizing they haven't got enough data and they've got to go back and do it all again. Yeah. So because they had so much data, they realized this Patrick Keans was cropping up quite regularly. But then there was a few there was a few giveaways in Patrick Keans' stories. Blackberry, the home of the Johnny Maxwell series, a town called Moorpork that had yet to find its ank, and Keans being Terry's mother's maiden name. And that was it. That was it. We were done. And and they also obviously read like Terry's. No one, no one else can write like Terry. And there they were. We found 20 short stories that we didn't know that we 
here's the point we we didn't go hunting for them because we didn't know they existed it, it, so there you go it was it was by complete and utter luck complete chance that these wonderful fans pat and jan went on their mission and 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 found them it'd been quite an emotional time though because you know caring so much for terry and then then these stories that he'd written i i can't imagine what you went through it was very very strange. It were it yes, I I was overjoyed. Then you have to wrestle with your conscience and think, what would Terry want us to do with them? And his wishes were that his unfinished works were destroyed, uh, which I did. But these were not unfinished. These had been published and therefore they, they had already been out there. Therefore the public had seen them. Therefore he must have been happy for them to have been in a state to be published, therefore let's republish them and let's let other people share in the joy that, that we felt when we found them. And the response has been incredible. It really has. And what I wanted, I wanted people to feel the same way as I did and I do. And that's exactly how they've been received. And I, and I, I don't take that for granted. For me, it's a real publishing event that we've found these stories and they're out there. But I didn't know how people would receive them. But they, they, they understand that they're proto-Terry Pratchett, that they're Terry Pratchett before he became the Terry Pratchett that we, that we know and love now. But let me tell you this, that any piece of equipment arriving here in the chapel where I'm sitting right now, any piece of equipment would immediately have its side lifted off. And me and Terry would peer inside wondering how we could improve on it or, or here's the important thing, what makes it tick? whether it's a computer or, hey kids, a fax machine, we would find a way of making it work better or maybe not making it work at all, but we, we, would, we would try. And what these stories are, they're levering off the back of Terry Pratchett's head and having a look inside and seeing what makes it made him tick and what went on to make him tick. And you can see the journey from these. It's a straight line from these to Nightwatch and beyond. Does that make you now wonder and worry if there are other short stories or other stories out there with another pseudonym? Are you just trawling every story ever written by mankind? Yeah, that's that's it. Oh, no, I just realised that's probably a job for AI, isn't it? I have to even say those letters here uh, <laughs> within the, these walls. But yeah, maybe, maybe one day it is. We're bound to find something, okay? We're bound to find a um, a shopping list that he gave me. We're bound to find a note that he pinned to the chapel door saying, Rob, I'm in the house. But in terms of short stories, I, I really, truly believe this is this is it. I, I'm, 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 I'm hedging my bets just in case, just in case something ever turns up and we, we realise that we've missed something. But it would be a genuine, genuine miss rather than us holding back another 50 short stories because I tell you this if there'd have been another 50 short stories we would have definitely printed them and bound them in, in this beautiful volume Let, let's assume for now this is absolutely it and short of a miracle we won't find anything else you mentioned what a beautiful publication it is and I have to agree it is absolutely gorgeous I mean you must have been so pleased when you saw the finished result I am delighted I it's all about the written word for me it doesn't matter what else I do for Terry whether it's TV film or whatever it always comes back to the written word so having a beautiful beautiful new volume with Terry's name on the front and I'm turning it over in my hands now because it looks and feels like a classic Terry Pratchett and I am absolutely over the moon 
The illustrations are great. It's beautiful. It's a gorgeous book. And listeners, Rob is literally beaming as he holds the book. You can just feel the joy. Can you remember getting the call when that first story was found? Yes. And I it was it was a call from Colin to me about the quest for the keys. Mm. And it felt so weird that it couldn't be new that my brain immediately went on a hunt through through my own archives in my head, thinking this is this is so familiar that I must have seen it before and Colin must be mistaken. And I think Colin was asking me because he was feeling exactly the way, same way about himself, that we both must be mistaken, that one of us was going to say, oh yeah, you know what, it was in the WH Smith's magazine in 1987 or something like that, you know, and pull a copy down from our shelves and prove the other one wrong. And we didn't. And I searched everywhere that I could search and there was no reference to it. There was no reference to the character, the main characters in it. There was no reference to them either. It was definitely, definitely looking like it was what we thought it was. And that's what it turned out to be. And how remarkable is that? And I would say that there are both two groups of people that this book would appeal to. Yes, those of us who are very loyal Terry Pratchett fans, but also those who haven't known where to step on to the the Terry Pratchett roundabout and when to jump in. I think it's a glorious way of being able to get a taste of Terry's approach to life and approach to writing and just open that door. Oh, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. A Quest for the Keys is the longest of the stories. And I think it's, it is, it's printed right at the back of the book. I would be happy for anybody to flick straight to the back and read that one and then go, okay, that's Terry Pratchett, that is, and then dive in either to the rest of the stories in here or go and pick up a Discworld book. I was just going to say, Rob, if when someone sort of devoured a stroke of the pen, and if they haven't read another Terry Pratchett, if such a person exists on the planet, what book would you suggest they go to next? Okay, I believe for this coming year, because we're, we're now coming, at the point of recording, we're now coming up to the anniversary, the uh, the 40th anniversary of the publication of Colour of Magic. And I believe the publishers are going to sticker the books and in such a way they're going to phrase it that there's no good or bad way to start. So you can di- dive in anywhere. And Terry himself, the only book that's got instructions to read a previous book is Witches Abroad. My advice to anybody is start anywhere, you lucky buggers, because that means you've got 41 pieces of joy to work your way through that, oh, you've got so much fun, so many beautiful books to read. But I do always feel that Colour of Magic is a good place to start because your reward for getting through Colour of Magic is another 40 beautiful books. And Terry himself said that Colour of Magic had no discernible plot. He wasn't dismissive of it. How could you be dismissive of a book that kick-started that career? For me, yeah, read Colour of Magic, knowing that your rewards are to come. Get to the end of that. It's a great book. Terry said it was four short stories with no discernible plot, as I say. Then you'll hit the big time very soon after that. Fantastic. Rob, you're going to read us a little bit from A Stroke of the Pen, I believe. I thought it would be nice to actually start with Neil Gaiman's introduction, his foreword. I think it says a lot about Terry, a lot about Terry, the myth of Terry. Yeah, let me let me do that. I'll save the short stories for you and I'll read just part of the introduction from Neil. Forward by Neil Gaiman. Terry Pratchett being now these eight years dead. I have watched at first hand as the living person I knew has become a legend of sorts. Terry is, 
in the popular mind, as far as I can tell, a beaming, gentle, wise soul of twinkling eye and noble mien, a sensible old comforter, able to be enlisted by people of widely differing beliefs into their camps, because, of course, their Terry would have agreed with them. They love his books, don't they? And I cannot help but feel that this semi-mythical Terry, like Merlin, but with a witty quip instead of a wand and a slightly shorter beard, might as well exist in the popular mind as any other Terry Pratchett. He is merrier than the Terry I remember, significantly less irascible, much less likely to hold opinions you disagree with. Brackets. Whoever you are reading this, whatever it is you believe, I promise that the real Terry held at least one opinion that would have made you curl your toes and go, oh, come on, you don't really think that. Close bracket. He is level-headed and always lovable. The real Terry Pratchett was certainly lovable, but not always. He had, as he would have been the first to tell you, his days. Even I, and I still miss the real person I remember, am occasionally grateful for the new revised semi-legendary Terry Pratchett. We rarely disagree about what's happening when I'm making good omens, for example, and that Terry mostly gives me his blessing to do as I think fit. Having said that, we do disagree sometimes, or at least there are times when the Terry in my head is very clear on what we should be doing, and it's not what I would have wanted to do. And then I sigh and do what I'm pretty sure Terry would have wanted instead of doing what I would have probably done. Sometimes when I think of Terry, I miss the bits of the stories Terry would tell me, or even show me, that were never published. They would have been, I'm sure, on the hard disk that was crushed by a steamroller after his death. The fragment of the story about Rincewind's mother, for example, or the Dunnekin diver section of the novel Moving Pictures. They existed once, but they are all gone now, crushed into fragments. Bits and bites reduced to bits and fragments of metal and silicon and glass. When Rob Wilkins, Terry's representative on Earth, called me and told me that a trove of Terry Pratchett stories had been unearthed by brilliant and dogged detectorists hunting through newspaper archives, I was unsure what to think, and then I read the stories. And I smiled. Brilliantly read, Rob. Oh, thank you. You get thank you, a gold star for that. Ask what? Which is your favourite story in the book? I immediately jumped to Quest for the Keys because yeah. it, it feels the most complete. It feels the most complete. And I'm now, oh, I'm looking through the list now and I know if I'm held, what would I go for? What would I go for? It's, 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 okay, okay, it's this. Mr. Brown's holiday accident. That's where I'm going for. And I think without giving anything away, certainly no spoilers, it's it's so much like the Truman Show. Um, <laughs> that it might as well be the Truman Show. And this was written considerably before the Truman Show. And I, and I love it. I love it. I love it. I think it's, it, yes, he would have taken that idea and he would have taken it a lot further. I don't think that story, that I know that story, it couldn't have existed on Discworld just because of the type of story that, that, that it is. Uh, you couldn't have had a Discworld where you you hit the horizon and opened a door of Discworld and, and appeared in our world or heavens above another world. But now I'm saying that, sitting here at Terry's desk, maybe you could have. Terry would have been far cleverer at doing that than, than myself. So yes, that's what I'm going for. Mr. Brown's holiday accident. I mean, this book is testament to the fact that Terry was such a storyteller, as we, as we know anyway. But was he like that to talk to? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. He had a brain like a vacuum cleaner and he hoovered up ideas all of the time. 
no matter where he was, no matter who he was talking to, you better not do anything in front of Terry Pratchett because he was going to log it away and he was going to write it down. You couldn't make any mistakes or do anything humorous in front of him. He was so much fun to be around. And sitting here, this is where this is where I sat. And he sat just to my right facing me with his arms folded across his body. He didn't cross his arms. He folded his arms across his body and we would just talk our way through the stories. And I was here and I can't believe now these eight years without Terry, how lucky I was that he told me the Discworld stories straight into my brain. How lucky am I to have experienced that? And Rob, there was a a quote of Terry's that I'm sure you have heard repeated again and again, but it really struck me. And I just say it's this, no one is finally dead until the ripples they cause in the world die away. And it just struck me that with a stroke of the pen, you know, those ripples just continue even more in a very joyful way. I'm so delighted because it's really my solid belief that if everybody in the world read a Terry Pratchett novel, the world would be a much better place than it is. And (laughs) we seem to be proving that every day the truth of that. And more people than ever seem to be getting into Terry's writing. And so he's he's obviously doing something right. He's talking to people in in a way that the other authors, yeah, they do a great job. I'm not dismissing anybody's work, but Terry seems to do it so well that he just gets under your skin and gets into your brain. And I'm I'm delighted. It amazes me when I see the the quarterly royalty statements and I find that Colour of Magic is still right there at the top of the list, which means the amusing thing for me, it means all of those people are buying that book for the first time. And that's, that's, that is remarkable. That's remarkable. It certainly is. We come to the final question, Rob, which is the most crucial one on this podcast and everybody gets asked it. So please bear with. But I ask this question both to you and if you could answer it as Terry as well. And the question is, what is the biscuit of choice? What biscuit powers for Terry the writing of the books and for you, I suppose, the collating of the books? It's the bourbon. Ah, now is that for you and for Terry? Did you share? That's that's you. That's for me. Terry would very much eat any biscuits that I brought (laughs) to my desk. And his question would always be, have you bought enough for the rest of the class? That would be it. (laughs) But he he liked a cookie. He liked something a bit oversized, a bit home-baked. We did often argue about the, the validity of the flapjack in this discussion. He would consider a flapjack a biscuit, but... It's a bit cakey for me because I do like I like my flapjacks that I know I know. Oh my goodness, I'm but I do like my flapjacks that are bordering on falling apart, a little bit doughy, a little bit not doughy so much, a little bit sort of bit of treacle in there, a bit of honey. Falling apart is what I need. Now I don't expect that from my biscuit. I expect from my biscuit something I can dunk, and that's why I love the bourbon into the tea out and the ridge round the side where uh, the, that makes up the sandwich. You you can get a spoonful of tea there. Yeah, I'm very passionate about the bourbon. <laughs> I am loving this information. That is absolutely <laughs> fantastic. I've never heard a flapjack described as a contender for a cake category. That's blown my mind. That's a, a flapjack in my mind is a health food because it's oats. No matter Ooh. how much syrup you put with it, I can still say I'm being healthy when I have a flapjack. I see. I'm. I'm now. You're, you're persuading me now. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. yeah, that's health. That's healthy, right? It is. Yeah, it's being good to yourself. It's taking care it's of healthy, yourself. even with a drizzle of chocolate on the top. Yeah, a chocolate-covered flapjack. Now we're talking. I was in the flapjack shop. Now, what is it called? Flapjackery in Bath only yesterday. 
where do you even start? Where do you even start? And so on the journey home, I ate the apple and blackberry flapjack that I promised myself that I would only have maybe a quarter. It was even going to be less than a quarter. And this morning when I got into the car to drive into the chapel, I realized that I had flapjack all over my seats. So I think I did more than more than that. But yes, it's fine now because it's a health food. You've told me that. I feel Yeah, you're fine. Healthy. No, you you should pat yourself on the back for that. That was that was good work done, Rob. It's just Thank wonderful you. to talk to you and to hear more about Terry Pratchett's collection of short stories, The Stroke of the Pen, The Lost Stories, Rob Wilkins. Thank you so much. Philippa, thank you very much. What fun. Thank you. Thank you. Coming up, one more author interview and more book reviews. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. So now we come on to the book at war by Andrew Pettigree. Let me read you the blurb of this one. In the book at war, acclaimed historian Andrew Pettigree traces the surprising ways in which written culture has shaped and been shaped by the conflicts of the modern age. Beginning with the American Civil War up to the invasion of Ukraine, Pettigree examines how democracies and their opponents have mobilised a range of literature from the maps and guidebooks that help plot the invasion of Normandy to the scientific papers that inspired ever-deadlier weapons of war to advance their ambitions in battle. Yet books and writers have also played their part on the home front too, in the imperial propaganda given to schoolboys in England, book burnings across Europe and America, and in the Blitz libraries set up in the London underground. Now, the minute I heard about this book, it was written up in a Sunday newspaper. And obviously, I go almost immediately to the book section whenever I get the newspaper, just have to see what books they're talking about. And I hadn't heard of this. I hadn't heard of this book until I read about it. And it just sounded so interesting. Obviously, it's nonfiction. But this is a book, if you are thinking about Christmas books for or birthday books or any, a gift for someone who is either 
a history lover or a book lover. And if they're both, then you need to go and get this immediately because they're going to be all over this. I found it fascinating. I really did. And I just think it's got such a different take. You know, just the role that books have played. It just it just makes you savor books even more, I think. But anyway, let's talk to Andrew now. It is my huge pleasure to welcome to the podcast today, Andrew Pettigree, whose book, fantastic, brilliant book, is called The Book at War. Andrew, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me and I'm very pleased to be here today. I'm just so thrilled to talk to you. The minute I heard about this book, I thought I need I need to read it. I'm not a huge non-fiction fan, but this book is so important and I found it so interesting. Like you can't see, but I've got post-it notes on it and all sorts <laughs> of things. I I found it really interesting. But let's start with the basics. Can you give us a summary of this book and how it came about? It really came about because I'd been writing a history of libraries. And it was clear to me that libraries were a particularly testing time, had a particularly testing time in wartime, Mm. and often suffered significant damage. But I also realised that that wasn't the whole story. Books were, to some extent, victims of warfare, but they were also, to an extent which people haven't really addressed, they were also perpetrators. Mm. They are responsible not only for bringing a great deal of succor and comfort to people in wartime, but they're also responsible for the ideologies that cause war in the first place. And I wanted to tell that story. And it was realized by the 20th century that libraries were also, as President Roosevelt of America said, books are munitions of war. They're essential to war making. So I wanted to trace that story partly through representational people in the occupations who were were involved in war-making, from publishers and authors to troops and prisoners of war to readers on the home front to scientists and topographers and intelligence officers for which printed material was absolutely essential to doing their jobs. So it became, as far as I could make it, an all-encompassing study of the relationship between warfare and books. And it's not all just about books being destroyed by bombs. It's about books playing a material part in war-making. I mean, I thought I loved books, but I didn't realise the importance of them until I read this book. I learnt so much and it just it changes how you think about books and their significance. I think historians are more than ever clear in their minds about this. And it's not just a matter of propaganda either. Propaganda is most effective, in my view, having written this book, when they're printed magazines or books which are not intended as propaganda. In other words, they are the the sort of soft persuasion which creates a climate in which, in the British case, imperialism becomes embedded as a core belief without people even really realizing that's what happens. There was a, a very touching moment when I was researching this book 
when I came across a conversation recorded with one of the young lads who'd gone along to the recruiting stations in 1914 to sign up for the trenches, obviously with little idea what he was letting himself in for. And he was asked, why are you, why are you, you come to join this huge queue? Why are you signing up? He said, I read, I read the same magazines that the other boys did. And that was, that was it in a nutshell. You know, the, the boy's own paper was probably the most important recruiting tool for British, for the British army in shaping the worldview of boys and young men. Was there even more that you wanted to include in the book? Did you f find even more experiences of the importance of books as you were researching it? Will there be a part two? Well, there, won't, well, there won't be a part two. I mean, in a way, I'd quite like to do the director's cut <laughs> and put back in all the material that didn't find room there. Because I have tried to move the story along, but when you're trying to take in so many of these different aspects and to an extent to do justice to a changing landscape of print during this period. For instance, the introduction of the paperback in the 1930s is absolutely crucial to the sort of books which could be published and to people's access to them. The fact that paperback series of considerable benefit, particularly in the American services editions, were, were, pu were published, and then in the case of the Americans with their resources, a thousand titles, carefully chosen, were distributed free of charge to American servicemen wherever they, are, they were in the world. So if they were defending some small Pacific atoll, then cases of American services editions would be sent to them there. It was, a, it was a majestic piece of logistics as well as a major intellectual initiative and resulted in some authors who hadn't really had a tremendous impact on their first publication becoming bestsellers. Scott Fitzgerald's Great Gatsby, for instance, was not hugely successful when it was first published, but reprinted as an American services edition it had considerable success. And so there was serious reading going on. And that's because in wartime, many people who are avid readers didn't have time to read because of all their new responsibilities. But on the other hand, a lot of troops who were stationed far from home, often in non-active fronts, had time for reading for the first time. And that was more than ever the case with prisoners of war, for whom their only chance of escape was reading. The chance of actually getting out of the camp was virtually nil. But of course, this was the great escape. They could lose themselves in reading. Has it altered your view on which books you choose to read? I wouldn't say that. I've certainly engaged with different sorts of literature for the first time as a result of this. For instance, Hitler's Mein Kampf is not anyone's idea of recreational reading, mm. but it was nevertheless one of the most influential books of the 20th century. Likewise, Chairman Mao's Little Red Book, which is a series of quotations which were produced in up to a billion copies and uh, in just about every language in which books could be printed at, at the time. I've enjoyed reading diaries enormously. Diaries played a big part of my research for this. I read through, I would say, between 40 or 50 
First and Second World War diaries, looking for references to the, the, the diarist's own reading. And so that was extremely helpful. And I've relatively recently discovered a very nice series which the Imperial War Museum produces, reprints of novels either printed during the, the Second World War or in the 10 years after. And that's actually a characteristic of fiction and war, that the real consideration of wartime events comes often a decade after. During the war, people don't want to do anything to damage their own nation's core. They don't want to do anything unpatriotic. So there's very little criticism of war in wartime among the inhabitants of the belligerent countries. And I believe you're going to read us a little bit from the beginning of the book, which is very exciting. I'm very happy to do this. Thank you. For you. The seed of the idea that became this book was planted appropriately enough during a visit to the Imperial War Museum in London in 2017. I had dropped by to see an exhibition on the preservation of art, including the museum's own collection, at the beginning of the Second World War, when it was moved out of the reach of the anticipated bombing. As a historian of media and communication, this set me thinking, what happened to the books? In the 75 years since the war, there's been a lot more attention given to the preservation, looting and restoration of art than to books. Yet, in the 20th century, the book stock of Europe and many Asian countries went through a period of turbulence unlike anything previously experienced in world history. Libraries were destroyed, along with tens of thousands of private collections, and even where stock survived, it was often appropriated by the victors. Much has never been returned. Brilliant. Thank you so much for that, Andrew. Yes. And the book, it's not just words. We, there are photos and images uh, running throughout the book just to help bring that history to life. Did you, was it fun choosing what to include? Or was it hard because you could only include so many? What was fun, actually, is that when you're working rather more than I have been in the past on the 20th century, it's actually quite easy to put together a collection of your own. And this book, a lot of it was researched during lockdown. And so there was a delivery man coming almost every day to produce something either for me or my wife or my grown-up children who'd come home during lockdown. So there were three of us working away around the dining room table. <laughs> and so I built a collection of wartime paperbacks. I built a collection of other literature and also the diaries that I've been talking about. So that was a very enjoyable part of this process. And of course, that gave me quite a lot of material that could be the source of illustrations. And I was then able to look at online and then to chase the copyrights to, to agencies. And so, yes, it, it was an interesting process. And there were a lot that didn't make the cut for this selection. Because, of course, your publisher is also interested in the aesthetics of this as well as the points you want to make by them. What I did enjoy, though, was captioning them. Because an illustration and potential readers should know that we have a plate section, but we also have a lot of embedded illustration. And the caption's always a very good opportunity to make a point that, you know, maybe has not been put so succinctly in the text. 
and so, so captioning is an art of its own and it's something I really enjoy doing. Oh, that's great. What would you say out of the whole book, whether it was the text or the images and photos, what part shocked you the most that you discovered? I think what shocked me the most was seeing so much of the impact on books of the 20th century wars being replicated in Ukraine. The Ukrainian war is, in military terms, a sort of hybrid. It started as a very 21st century war with precision missiles, which we didn't have before this point, and then settled down into some very old-fashioned trench warfare. Mm. But you see so much of what happened to books in the 20th century wars still occurring. People having to leave their collections as they flee the advancing armies, university libraries being destroyed, and then libraries being regenerated from private collections. Meanwhile, in the areas conquered by the Russians, they're throwing Ukrainian books out of the libraries to be replaced by Russian texts. And in the Ukrainian public libraries and in private collections, people are taking out Russian books and, in the case of private citizens, often handing them over to be pulped. One of the aspects of total war is that everyone wants to do their bit. And they can sometimes do that by simply giving up some of their own books, either for the troops, book drives for the troops were a major feature of the First and Second World War and didn't always produce very, very good stock for the troops, certainly not the sort of things they wanted to be reading. But then also for rap, so that it could be repurposed for other other reasons. Now, of course, paper was very short in, in the war. So giving up your own newspapers, magazines, books, so that they could be pulped and recycled was an important part of the war effort. In fact, in in the Second World War in, in Britain, it became a criminal offence to use newspapers to light your fire with. So, you know, paper was very, very precious and couldn't be imported easily because it's very bulky and the Atlantic route was extremely dangerous. So the quotas of paper that the publishers had were way, way down on their pre-war levels. And actually, the existence of the paper quota was probably the most effective control that the government could exercise, far more important than censorship. But it is, it is very, very sad to see so much of what one recognises from a past you thought was past now coming to be again in, in Ukraine. So that was what most shocked me. But in, in a way, it also gave me hope because the number of books in private hands is the secret weapon as far as the survival of libraries is concerned. I can see to some extent why more attention has been, has been given to art because every artwork is unique, whereas books are often printed in editions of 1,000, 5,000, 10, 100,000. So if the public library is bombed and loses its copies, there are other copies which can be taken back to reconstitute a library. In fact, books are one of the strange and rare items in war where it's actually far more expensive to destroy them than it is to reconstitute them. You know, if a cruise missile is used to bomb a, a library, that's I don't know, five million or something down mm. on that one shot, whereas the books themselves are often fairly mundane. It's fascinating. What's your favourite section of the book? 
Oh, that's like asking me what my favourite ch- child is. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> go on, let's name names, Andrew. I've much enjoyed writing the chapter on the home front because that brought you to contact with a lot of the diarists, some of whom were, were doing sort of mundane world war work and just hearing what they had time to, to read and whether they had any time to read at all. That was really interesting. The chapter on prisoners of war is something of, of a favourite of mine. And then I did enjoy writing, though it is a large chapter, the chapter on the Cold War, because here you have a war which is purportedly peace, but at the same time, the ideological battle is being fought even harder through print whether it's floating Bibles over the Czech border tied to balloons, which did nothing but litter the Czech countryside and surprise a few shepherds who came across <laughs> these things, or, or it is the enormous success of James Bond behind the Iron Curtain, which was the, one of the few things about intelligence that really rattled the Soviets. They were clearly winning the real intelligence war with all the spies that they'd recruited in America and Britain. But they they were needled by James Bond and his and his glamour, and they tried to come up with some sort of Soviet equivalent of, of James. And and so that was that was fun to discover and fun fun to write. One of the things about writing a book, which I think all non-fiction writers would agree about is that one of the first people person to to be learning a lot new is the author themselves and I certainly certainly found that I was learning a ton of things I didn't know before. Can I ask what you're working on next? What will be the next book? I've got some choices. At the moment I'm spending a lot of time still reading about books in wartime because it continues to interest me and of course I'm doing a lot of talking about it so that's good but we're also still being asked to talk about the library book Mm -hmm. quite a lot so to do that and this book and a new project simultaneously is quite difficult i think i might write uh, a book on on the rise and fall of the newspapers because newspapers were became the dominant feature in in the news environment in the 19th century and then in the 20s, because all the technological advances helped the spread of newspapers and helped them print bigger editions. So it was, it was a, a magic age for the newspaper. It was a golden age. And then in the 20th century, of course, all the technological advances yeah. seemed to be in competition with them. So I've thought if I put it off, I've put it off a few years because I wanted to see how the story ends. We're not quite at the end of the story, but we, I mean, that's something I could certainly do. I've also got half a mind on writing a history of communication through all the processes that we use to communicate with each other. But that's quite a big idea. And whether my publisher would allow me to write a bigger book, that's another story. It sounds like you've got lots of interesting ideas. And we come to the final question, Andrew, which is the most important one on this podcast. And it is, when you were writing the book at war, what biscuit was powering the work? What was your biscuit of choice? Since it's a book about the 20th century, and I wasn't prepared to go as far as eating spam, (laughs) I thought a fig roll was the appropriate adornment of this project. Actually, they're very nice. They're also very cheap. 
I used to love a figure on until someone told me that there's dead wasps in there. It <laughs> did put me off somewhat. I can tell you from my extensive research that I have not yet come across one. <laughs> Keep going with your figure on research and your book research because you produce fascinating books to delight us. Andrew Pettigree, whose latest book is The Book at War, Thank you so much. Thank you to Philippa. It's been a pleasure to have this conversation. So the next book I'm going to talk to you about is Halloween Party, a Poirot by Agatha Christie. Um, Mark on the Facebook group. I mention Mark a lot. And another book's coming up that Mark recommended. Usually Mark's recommendations I find spot on. More of that later. But anyway, Mark was talking about his favourite Agatha Christie books. And I said, well, if you had to pick one, what would it be? And he said, Halloween Party. So let me read you the blurb on this one. No one believes young Joyce Reynolds when she boasts she once witnessed a murder. Until, that is, she is found drowned, face down in an apple-bobbing tub. What exactly was it she saw? Then the victim's brother is found drowned too, and the mysteries multiply. Hercule Poirot and Ariadne Oliver must race to get at the truth and prevent further tragedy. Let me read you the first sentence of this Mrs Ariadne Oliver had gone with a friend with whom she was staying, Judith Butler, to help with the preparations for a children's party, which was to take place the same evening. I really enjoyed this book. I have to admit, I am more of a Miss Marple fan than a Hercule Poirot. I don't know what that says about me. But if I had to be stuck in a lift for 24 hours and was given the choice of being stuck in a lift with Hercule Poirot or with Miss Marple. I would choose Miss Marple every time. I mean, I realise that's slightly unlikely to happen, but that's what I'd go for. I really enjoyed this book. It kept me gripped. I enjoyed it. Yeah, I thought the top marks are very, very good. Agatha Christie, glad I read it. And now we come on to the next one, which is Natural Causes by James Oswald. And I've been wanting to tell you about this book for a while. It's a crime book. It's the beginning of a series. And I really enjoyed it. Let's read the blurb. The discovery of a young girl's body on an Edinburgh building site is bad enough. But what leaves its mark on Detective Inspector Tony McLean is that she was ritually murdered and sealed in an underground chamber 60 years ago. Seeking to lay this lost and forgotten girl to rest, McLean is determined to finally uncover what happened to her. However, his superiors insist he has more immediate concerns. The bloody murders of high-profile figures across the city, which all bear an uncanny resemblance. Yet the deeper McLean looks into both cases, the more he's convinced that the girl and the murders are linked. He just has to figure out how. Let me do the first sentence. So this is the Inspector McLean series. Chapter 1. He shouldn't have stopped. It wasn't his case. He wasn't even on duty. But there was something about the blue flashing lights, the scene of crime van and uniforms setting up barriers that Detective Inspector Anthony McLean could never resist. What did I think about this book? I thought it was amazing. It was troubling. I read and enjoyed it. And I, for some reason, I was delayed over the days that I could read it. So it was a bit more drawn out. And you know me, when that happens, I tend to go off a book. No, really, really enjoyed it. I think if you want a crime book, but with something more, this, you will really enjoy this. As I say, the end was a bit unsettling for me. 
But I've already ordered the next one in the series because I thought it was very good. Really enjoyed it. Finally, we come on to Into the Uncanny by Danny Robbins. Now, I mentioned Mark earlier. I'm mentioning him again. He had mentioned this book. And I thought, well, it sounds very good. In all innocence, I thought it sounds very good. So it's this is the blurb. Do you believe the ghosts of today don't live in castles or stately homes? They're in normal houses and workplaces witnessed by ordinary people like you and me. Now, we just need to figure out what they are. The dead returning from the undiscovered country of death or the product of that equally mysterious location, the human mind. And this book is done by Danny, who has done the Uncanny podcast um, and been on TV as well recently. And it goes on to say, this is the story of ordinary people who have experienced extraordinary things and want to make sense of them. Each one is a brand new case, never shared before, modern day real life ghost stories that will make your blood run cold. And then this is the final sentence that I should have paid more attention to. It is also a journey of self-discovery as Danny explores what the paranormal means to us and the exciting and terrifying prospect that we are not alone. And the word terrifying is what I would apply to this book. So in my mind, I'm getting braver, reading things that scare me, but I know that that is fiction and therefore I can deal with it and I can enjoy some of them. But this, this is non-fiction and I was reading it, I was believing it and that made me scareder than a scared thing and I had to put the book down stop reading it and not I will not be p- picking this book up again. It's not because the book's bad. <laughs> the book's very good. It's because I'm bad. I just, I couldn't. It was too much. It was just too much. There weren't enough biscuits that could have allayed the angst that I felt when I was reading this. It's just too much, too much, too much, too much. I can't even look at the book now. Too scared am I about this. So, that just shows if you're into scary non-fiction things and you want to find out more about these scary non-fiction things, you're going to love it. If you're just a scaredy cat like me and find fiction scary enough, then yeah, maybe not for you. Maybe not for you. But there we go. Those are your books. I hope you've got a good range of them. I mean, crikey, what, what books have we covered? We've covered A Stroke of the Pen, The Lost Stories by Terry Pratchett, The Book at War by Andrew Pettigree. We've had Halloween Party, a Poirot by Agatha Christie. Natural Causes by James Oswald and Into the Uncanny by Danny Robbins. Those are your books. We're done. I'm going to send you on your way. Have a glorious week, everybody. I hope you're okay. I'll be back on Friday with some short interviews with a short episode. But just look after yourselves. Let me know if you have ever read a book and then seen it as a film or series and been pleased with it and enjoyed it. I really want to find, I really want to find someone that that's happened to. But anyway, my search continues. Just look after yourselves and I'll talk to you very soon. Take care now. Bye bye. You've been listening to the Quick Book Reviews podcast. That's enough books, said no one, ever. See you again soon. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.